Welcome into Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. David, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing really good. I think we got a great show lined up for you here tonight. We got some MLB as they're getting into their season. The NBA, Kevin Durant makes his big return tonight, but not in the starting lineup. And we'll also get into our NFL free agency grades that we started last week. But first, the month of April, a new month. It's the first Tuesday of April, and at the end of the, this month, the NFL draft will take place on the 29th. So this month, we will look at the best NFL draft picks of all time. This is in terms of value at the pick. So each week, we will feature a player that has defied the odds to redefine the NFL. Our first player of the month is reigning Super Bowl champion Antonio Brown. Brown was drafted 195th overall in the 6th round of the 2010 NFL Draft. He's enjoyed an illustrious 11-year NFL career, and during his time in the league, he's amassed 11,746 yards and 79 touchdowns. He also has achieved the Pro Bowl 7 times and is a 4-time All-Pro as well. Brown was a member of the All-2010 Decade Team. He's played for the Steelers, Raiders, Patriots, and Buccaneers, and it was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers where he finally became a Super Bowl champion this past season with Tom Brady. Brown is looking to move up the record books as he continues his already staggering career. He's currently an NFL free agent, so it'll be interesting to see where he signs. This week, we took a look at one of the best NFL draft picks of all time. Be sure to check out our social media and as well be listening for next, week, next week's athlete. So Antonio Brown brings up a good question. When you look at all the receivers that have played in this past decade, 2010 to 2019, who would you qualify as the best wide receiver of that decade? That's definitely a tough question because there are a lot of very talented players that have played throughout this decade. My gut reaction, I like I want to go Calvin Johnson because he's so talented, but he only played for four years in the decade, so you can't he didn't have a good stat line just within this decade. So I'm going to go with Julio Jones, uh, just a fantastic receiver, 12,000 yards, multiple seasons leading the league in yards and yards per game, as well as receptions. He can just do anything, and he plays so hard every day. He Just a real competitor. So he's my pick for the best receiver of the decade. Yeah, and Julio Jones has been absolutely fantastic. He's been really kind of what every receiver, a mold that you want from the receivers in the league today. 6'3", 225, and can move like a 4'3", 4'4", wide receiver. That's something that you do not see. And for me, my best, my favorite and best receiver of the decade, in my opinion, is Antonio Brown. When I look at what Antonio Brown's done, he has 11,746 yards. Julio has just a thousand more than him and Julio all and Antonio Brown excuse me has also missed a year and a half of football um, whether it be the personal issues or free agency being a free agent for so long being suspended he's been down a year and a half and is behind by just a thousand yards to Julio Jones career-wise and Antonio Brown also has as 19 more touchdowns than Julio Jones has scored they both been just absolutely fantastic receivers but I just feel like Antonio Brown, especially in his time in Pittsburgh, 
didn't really get the type of credit that he truly deserved. He's a premier route runner. He's elite at getting separation. And he also helped keep the Steelers afloat in those years where Big Ben was injured. Obviously, he wasn't with the Rudolph team, but Big Ben's been an often injured quarterback in the NFL, and he's helped keep the Steelers afloat. I think Antonio Brown, in terms of overall all-time legacy, is extremely underrated. He's a guy that right now he ranks about 30, 31 to 28 in receiving yards all-time. He's about 1,500 yards away from pushing his way into the top 10, top 15. And Antonio Brown, in my opinion, doesn't get talked about like a guy who's about to be in the top 10, top 15 in receiving categories of all time. So I just really love Antonio's game, and I hope to see him on a new NFL team next season, possibly the same one. And that brings up the next question. Does Antonio Brown end up back in Tampa Bay next year? Does he go? To, does he stay in free agency, or does someone new pick him up? I think he's going to go to Tampa uh, a little bit more money than the previous year, but he's still not going to get paid a whole lot. Part of that is you still have, well, not recently, you still do have some personality issues, and there's always the worry that that's going to kind of kick up again. So he's not going to get paid a lot, but I think he's going to stay in Tampa because they're winning. You want to play with a winning team. I don't think he's in it for the money right now. He just wants rings, which is fair. Yeah, and that's one thing that Antonio Brown was finally able to get this last season was that ring. And I personally do think he ends up in Tampa Bay as well. I know Russell Wilson's made pushes to get him, but I just don't see Seattle being that team that's going to step up and be like, yes, we're going to bring in Antonio Brown. So when I look at it, I think Tampa Bay makes the most sense. Tom Brady loves them. And it's actually pretty impressive. He played eight games with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year as wide receiver three. He was that third target on that team, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin being one and two. He had 45 catches for 483 yards. He was on pace to be very close to a 1,000-yard receiver and almost 100 catches as a wide receiver three. And that's pretty incredible numbers when you really think about it. But when you play with Tom Brady, that's the type of stuff that you're going to see regularly. So for me, I think Tampa Bay makes too much sense for him to not go back to. Obviously, Arians and and Tom Brady have a little bit more trust in him than other NFL teams would, like you said, with those personality issues. So I expect Antonio Brown to end up back in Tampa Bay. I'd like to think he's all about the rings, but seeing Antonio Brown recently and his exit from Pittsburgh... I'm not quite 100% sold that's what it is with him. And I think if it was about just the rings, he'd already be back in Tampa Bay. But I think money is starting to become um, in question for him as his career starts to come to a close here. Going to be 34 years old, I believe, in July. So it'll be interesting to see where he ends up. Now we're going to move into the MLB here. And the MLB, about a week into their season now, uh, past opening day, Fernando Tatis, a guy that we've talked about a lot for the Padres, goes to the 10-day IL with a partially dislocated shoulder. Is this injury something you're worried about moving forward with him? Uh, I am, personally, yes. Uh, he, The team knew he had a history of shoulder dislocations, and once you dislocate your shoulder for the first time, it gets easier and easier. So 
right now he's on the 10-day IL and electing not to have surgery, which I, I'm not a big fan of, but he's going to come back maybe after 10 days, probably a little longer. But it's, it's worrisome. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. I am worried about it. And I am because any injury for any athlete this early in the season, you have to worry about how that's going to affect them the rest of the way. And obviously there's some injuries like, okay, he'll bounce back. But you see kind of throughout the year, it looks like the injury's still plaguing them. They're trying to kind of overcompensate for some pain that they're feeling in the area. And also you have to look at, you get out to a hot start in a season, your confidence is sky high. And that's normally what you see players do. They get out to these hot starts. And that really helps their confidence the rest of the way. That's how they're able to keep these good seasons going moving forward. He now, he was out to a little bit of a slower start in terms of defense, defensively. But now he doesn't have a chance to really get back into a groove of things. I think confidence is going to be affected by that. And the overall ability to stay healthy. Already getting injured so early in the season is not something you want to see if you're the Padres. Because there's so much hype around this team. And losing one of your big name stars like that is definitely not what you want. So I am. I am worried about it. And now looking at his defensive stats here, he had five plus errors in just his first couple of games of the season, which tied his season high from last year. Is the hype, do you think that's too big for Tatis right now? No, he, he lives on the hype. Uh, there was a quote from uh either his manager or the uh, GM of the Padres, that they knew he was experiencing some shoulder pain before the injury. So I think it was a little worse than he let on. And it was, and that's part of the reason for the errors. We saw in his uh, first season, he had kind of higher level of errors trying to make that spectacular play. He's toned that down last year and being a little more routine and making making the everyday play. So I think his defense is going to be fine. It's just how is how long is he going to be out and how is he going to bounce back? Because you really want to be careful with this. You, you know, shoulder dislocations are prone to happen more often. And he's 22 and you just signed him to a 14-year extension you don't want to mess up your player long-term. Yeah, I think long-term should be the absolute view of this injury. No reason to rush him back, especially when your goal is the Padres right now. You know you're going to be in a position at the end to win it all. Let's get him as healthy as possible the rest of the way. I'm personally as well not worried about the five errors that he, five plus errors that he had in his first couple of games. I don't think the hype is too large. I think it's just a guy who got a $14 million, uh, 14-year uh, big-time extension, and he's just going out there for the first time playing baseball since he got an absolute monster contract extension. Yeah, you're going to be a little bit nervous playing after that new deal, and it's not something to worry about. I mean, just some of these early season jitters. I It's one of those things that the media is going to really look into, but, I mean, any player knows that getting back into the groove of things is your number one goal, and that's all he's doing right now is he's just getting back into the groove of things and trying to respond to a huge contract. He'll be fine. Give it a little time. I'm more worried about the injury than I would be his five errors that he had. 
And now we talked about, obviously, if the injury is worrisome. But now let's look at him coming back. Do you think when he comes back, we can expect him to be back to his NL MVP candidate self again? Or do you think that's now in the rearview mirror? It really depends on how long he stays out and how he recovers. If he's going to be out for 30-plus games and then start slow once he gets back, it, it might take him out of the running. But it's it's really not, for me at least, it's not so much how is he going to perform this season or how how are the Padres going to be without him because the Padres are going to be fine. It's going to be how does he recover and making sure you don't rush him back, which I think they might be doing. You know, he elected to not get surgery on the shoulder, so that was his choice, but I, I question it a little. Yeah, for me, I think he can get back to that NL MVP candidate self. Um, I know, obviously, the injury, like you said, is number one priority. But I personally believe he can come back from this injury and he can get better from it. Um, everyone expected him to kind of take another step forward. Last year was a huge jump for him. And everyone expected him to, once again, take another step forward into that kind of top-tier guy with the best out there. And I think he can get back to that. He's in a perfect situation to really go out there and play well. He has so much talent around him. And when you're kind of, when you have a lot of talent around you and you're a successful team and you're kind of that face of that team, let's say, you're the one getting the most attention. I think it's very easy to get yourself in these MVP races. And I, I think that's exactly what we're going to see from him. Just get him back on the field, back in the diamond. And we're going to see him be successful and be himself. And I think that's the most important thing for uh, Tatis moving forward. And now we're going to look at the New York Yankees. They acquire Odor from the Texas Rangers. David, do you like this move? It's, I don't hate it, but I don't love it. It's The Rangers were definitely, they were going to sell low on him. He just wasn't performing how they wanted and uh, from Jeff Passan, the Rangers are taking most of his salary uh, on their books. So you didn't give up a whole lot to get him. I just don't know where he fits in your lineup. He, he is a good bat, gives you a, a left-handed power bat, but I'm just, where is he going to play? He, he's been very spotty. Sometimes he's been pretty solid. Sometimes he's been very bad defensively. Second base is already full with DJ LeMahieu. Maybe you put him at third, but then Gio Urshela is moved. And you just you don't have room for him is my problem. Yeah, for me, um, I was pretty meh about the trade. I saw it. I was like, okay. I go, yeah. But when I look at this trade... I think more along the lines of depth for this Yankees team. Right now, I agree. There's not really a spot for him. I mean, you look at the interior there. You got Glaber. You got LeMahieu. There's really not a place for him, like you said. But this also is a Yankees team that the last two years has gone through nothing but injury-riddled seasons. I think, personally for them, they're trying to build up a little depth. They don't want injuries to derail another season for them. Because we talk about the Padres and the Dodgers, 
The Yankees also have a very, very talented roster that kind of gets overshadowed by those teams because they're always injured. Judge, Stanton, guy, even Glaber last year. Guys all dealing with uh, injuries. I think getting a nice depth piece, when I look at it in those terms, I think that definitely helps them out a lot. Does it put them over the top and catch up with the Dodgers and the Padres? No. No, it doesn't. But at the same time, it's getting them to be a better team. And if injuries do strike once again, they're going to be better prepared for that in the future. So while I was pretty mad on the trade, I do like the depth addition. there. I think that's going to be key uh, for them moving forward is to you have a good team, but injured a lot. You need to get a little bit of depth with that roster. And for the going away post that the Rangers made for Odor, they added in the background a picture, and it was him when he punched Jose Bautista. Do you like them adding that into the post, or was it unnecessary? It was a little unnecessary, but I like it anyway. That's the most noteworthy event that, like, when I hear his name, it immediately goes to that moment, that picture of him punching Jose Bautista in the face. Was it warranted? That's a whole other conversation, but that's just kind of good marketing. You know this is what the player is most known known for. You're going to bring it up. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Um, it makes the most sense that, like you said, that's what he's kind of known for with the Rangers. So getting that in there, they almost had to. And when you look at that moment, if you, especially if you're a Rangers fan, that is pr- compared to the seasons you've had recently that's one of the more exciting things that has happened for you guys as a team so yeah I think putting it in there I don't have anything against it I think it was fine um and it's what he's going to be remembered by years down the road you're going to be remembered as the guy that punched Jose Bautista so putting it in there I don't really have an issue with Next topic in the MLB that we have here is Wilson Contreras, the Cubs catcher, was hit twice in two nights. And in the second one, the bench is clear in the Brewers versus the Cubs matchup. Do you think him getting hit twice is a sign of maybe a little bit something more there? That It's hard to tell because a pitcher is never going to, almost never, going to go out and say, yeah, I hit him on purpose. But he does... Wilson Contreras is a player that just he crowds the box and gets hit a little more often than the average player. But there is the NL Central is so close this year, and the division as a whole has such a big rivalry with every other team that gets nasty pretty quick, uh, specifically any team in the Reds. Uh, but I think it could be a little bit more. You definitely, Wilson Contreras didn't have a great year last year. He started off a little slow, so it could be a little more frustration building there. Yeah, and for me, when I saw, obviously the first one, uh, he took the pitch right to the head and hit off his helmet, and he didn't say anything, didn't look at the pitcher. He said, oh, I'm good, I'm good, and he just walked to first base. And then the second one, he got hit in the back, and he was made sure to let everyone know about it. He was not happy about it whatsoever. And I do think it's a little sign of something more. And I think it is because we're starting to see, like you said, the competitiveness of that division starting to heat up a little bit, and especially between the Brewers and Cubs, who do have a pretty decent history the last 
uh, three or four years. They There was the time when they had to go to the extra game. I mean, they do have a history there. And now both of them think, hey, we're healthy. We have a chance to compete within this division. And they want to let the other team know that. And so, obviously, Wilson's not just going to let that happen. He's not going to uh, let him get hit two times in two nights. And then if you're the Brewers as well, maybe trying to send a message to the Cubs as well that you're not going to back down. I think there is a little something more to that. And I'm excited to see the Brewers-Cubs matchups as we move forward because I think that's going to be a storyline you have to watch the rest of the way. And in that game, the bench is cleared for both sides. Do you think the benches clearing was just frustration between the teams, or do you also think that was just a little bit of, hey, we're we're trying to show that we're back into a rivalry again? I think a little bit of it was frustration, and some of it is just guys are very quick to get out of the dugout, get out of the bullpen when they see anything going on. Uh, I don't think it was really necessary. Wilson definitely like kind of moves towards the pitcher but it's more like kind of yelling at him and talking it didn't look like he was gonna fight him uh the brewer's catcher gets in front of him which is just what you do as a catcher when someone's uh talking kind of angry at your pitcher so it looked like he was just kind of being pushed off to the side down to first base and it looked like he was going with it when the bench is cleared so I think it's it's just guys being quick to get out of the bench. Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily as much frustration um, as more of you saw Wilson, his reaction to it. And Wilson Contreras has always been a level-headed player. He's not one to start a bunch of issues. And when he took offense to getting hit that second time, the Cubs are going to back him up on that. And obviously, when the Cubs decide they're going to back up their guy, the Brewers aren't going to let their pitcher uh, sit there high and dry. So I think that's all we really saw there was Wilson Contreras took major offense to that. And we saw the Cubs stick up for him and say, hey, we're not going to let that happen. And then obviously the Brewers have to respond. It's kind of just that team camaraderie. It's one of those things. These guys put in all this work together. They're not going to let another one get mistreated in any way by another team so I think that's what we're seeing there I don't think it's necessarily frustration um obviously both sides last season didn't perform like they wanted to and now we're early into the year I don't think that we still have frustration from that past season I think they both moved on and they've looked past kind of the injury riddled seasons both of them kind of had to deal with so I don't think frustration was it and now looking at this rivalry in general can the Cubs-Brewers get back to that type of rivalry we saw where they had to go to the extra game, decide who won the division? Absolutely. It's This division is going to be really tough. You have four legitimate contenders and then the Pirates. Um, but it's gonna. I think it's going to come down to the last series or the last couple games. And it's, it's going to get hot. It's there's going to be some tension. And just a thing worth noting, in Wilson Contreras' last 11 games versus the Brewers, he's been hit by a pitch six times. So there is some animosity there, and I think that's just going to grow as the season moves along. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think this rivalry can get back into that prime form that we saw. Obviously, I don't think it's going to be like each team at 95, 96 wins going for a division. But I do think going for the division, nonetheless, the Cardinals have played all right. But I don't. I think I expected personally the Cardinals to be a bit better than I've seen just to start. And yes, I know it just pretty early here still but I still expect them to get out to a little bit hotter of a start with the big moves that they made but we'll see um, four and two is not a bad start whatsoever I just expect them to be leading the NL Central at the early going because they did have the hype but I do think the Cubs and Brewers can really uh, start to get back to that shape and I think we're already starting to see the early stages of what we can expect towards the end of the year especially when these games mean a little bit more than just your first couple of games and now this season, tomorrow will be a week since opening day. And who has been the biggest surprise player for you so far? For me, it's Cattell Marte. I had a feeling he was going to take a step forward this year. He had a great spring training, hit uh, 341, was just all around a solid player. But I didn't expect this hot of a start. In 23 plate appearances, uh, 23 at-bats, he's hitting 522 with two home runs and four doubles. So he's hitting very well. He's scoring runs. He's drawing walks and not striking out too much. And just, like, he's he's had good seasons in the past, but his career uh, batting average is 285, nowhere near... Obviously, he's not going to keep up hitting 500, but he's he's hitting well. His something I really like is his isolated power. A little more of a advanced statistic is way up there. He's hitting the ball and he's hitting it hard. Yeah, for me, my player that has been a surprise to me so far is uh, personally one of my favorite players and a fan favorite, uh, for, especially for the San Francisco Giants and as well the Atlanta Braves at this point. I'm going with Pablo Sandoval. i got to give him a little credit for this start that he's had so far. He's been a, he's had four at-bats, two home runs. He's very close to that uh, tying the lead league in home runs, and he's just been pitch hitting. That's all he's been doing, pinch hitting for the Atlanta Braves. And today, one of his home runs actually was what won the game for him. had two RBIs as well in that matchup so we look at his stats here four at bats he has four rbis off that two hits two home runs that's pretty efficient baseball from a pinch hitter i don't think you can complain much about that and if you asked the braves organization what they expected to get from pablo sandoval this early i don't think it'd be two home runs and especially one being what won the game so can he keep that up no he won't he's batting 500 right now He's not going to keep that up, but I do feel like he's a player that, I mean, a lot of people forget he was a World Series MVP in 2012 against the Detroit Tigers. He had three home runs in the opening game there of that series. He's a guy that's got, got some power, and I think uh, he can get some more attention as the season goes on if he can keep up this kind of streak that he's been on here. I personally don't think he will, but it's just a fun story. Everyone loves the Panda. And I think it's just a fun story. He's got out to a hot start. And it's something that I don't think a lot of people expected whatsoever. Obviously, the Braves could do a little bit better. Uh, sitting at 2-4 and four right now, I expected them to be a little bit better. But hey, Pablo Sandoval is out to a hot start, so I can't complain. 
And now also, after one week, who is the best team so far? Uh, it's the same as it was coming into the season. It's the Dodgers. They're just absolutely stacked in every position. And then you have starting caliber talent on your bench. They're going to be really good. They can easily survive the grind of the 162-game season. They're, they're going to have a good year. Yeah, I think we got the same one, the best team so far. I mean, it's hard to pick against the Dodgers when you have the talent, you have the pitching, you have the bullpen. I mean, there's really not one spot on the Dodgers you can point to and go, oh, yeah, that needs major work. I mean, yeah, every team can get better, but that team has just so much talent that I really just think it's hard not to call them the best team, and until someone dethrones them, it's theirs to keep. So I'm with you on that. Not much to really say about the Dodgers at that point. Now we're going to move into some NBA topics here. and The Golden State Warriors, what a trend they've been on. They went from by far the best team in basketball, multiple finals appearances in a row, to losing Kevin Durant, Steph Curry getting hurt, Klay Thompson getting hurt. Since they lost the finals to the Toronto Raptors, which is Kevin Durant's last year with the Golden State Warriors, they've dealt with many injuries. And in their one of their games just a couple nights ago, Draymond Green and Steph Curry were out with injury. They were down by 60 points at one time in the game, and I believe they ended up officially losing by 54 points in the matchup. Are the Warriors really that bad? Yes and no. It It's a complicated answer because overall, their team is pretty good. They're not the best in the West, but the West is absolutely stacked this year. They were missing two of their best players, Steph Curry and Draymond Green. You're going to take a step back when you don't have those top-tier players. Any team, like in the NBA today, you can't really win without star players. I think the last time we saw that was just one star winning was Dirk uh, on the Mavs. Other than that, it's been a couple stars and a good solid role play uh, bench. So I'm the Golden State Warriors aren't that bad. They just uh, barely won against the Bucks yesterday. So I think right now they're not as good as they want to be, but they can get better. Yeah, when I look at this Warriors team, no, they're not sixty po- losing by 60 points bad, but they are bad. I will say that there's a lot of room for improvement on that on this team. And the biggest thing they're missing right now is Klay Thompson. With Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, when you have the Splash Brothers on the court, they're one of the most unstoppable teams in basketball. If you give them Klay Thompson... In my opinion, they're easily in the playoff picture for the West right now. Right now, they're sitting at that 10th seed. They're easily in that playoff picture. And when I look at the roster roster that they have as well, Andrew Wiggins, for me, he's just too inconsistent. Some nights, you're going to get a good defender and a nice score. Other nights, you're going to get neither of those things. And sometimes, you'll get just one. Then, James Wiseman, I wasn't a huge fan of that pick when they first got him. My my personal mock draft I did for the NBA, I had LaMelo Ball 
going to the Warriors. I thought that was just a matchup that had to happen. Steph, Clay, and LaMelo with Draymond Green. I just thought that was going to be such a nice team they could put together there. And James Wiseman, he's had some issues developing so far. He's had some really bad games. He's had some decent games. He's an X factor for this Warriors team. He needs to develop and get better. And this Warriors team for me personally, and we'll get into it in just a little bit here, this isn't about right now. This has nothing to do with right now. This team, if they did make the playoffs, would be a first-round exit. So for me, it's about developing some of these guys. I would have traded Kelly Oubre personally. Um, I know you just got him this last offseason, but he's not performed the way that you've wanted to. He's also another inconsistent guy. When you have inconsistent players like the three I've just talked about, when you have Steph and Clay and Draymond, you can hide that, where just one of them needs to step up a night, and you can clearly win uh, basketball games. They're not getting that right now. And if Steph Curry's not scoring 35-plus 35 points, they're not in basketball games. So for me right now, Steph Curry dealing with his tailbone injury in this Warriors team, they're not 60 points losing bad because I don't really believe that you can be that bad in the NBA where you're consistent losing by 60 points. It's just unheard of, but they are bad. And I don't think it's necessarily because of the team they have. They're just injured, and I think they still just need one more piece. They need one more guy. Could it be Klay Thompson? Yes. But I would like to see them get maybe even one more this offseason. It doesn't have to be an all-star, but somebody else that can be more consistent for this team. Now looking at the Warriors, I talked about them being 10th in the West currently. Do you think it's time for the Warriors to throw in the towel, or do you think they're a team that can make a late push here to get into the postseason? I think they could make a late push. Realistically, there's kind of two options, either making that push or kind of tanking in this season. Both are viable options. You can rest Steph Curry, rest Draymond Green, make sure everyone's healthy for next season, and then try and get the best draft pick you can. Because it's always a possibility in with the draft lottery that you could get bumped up a couple spots but for the fans for the morale of the players they're gonna try and win it's that's just all players know how to do is try to win yeah I think you're exactly right and for me Steph Curry is also one of the bigger forces behind it's not you can't throw in the towel you have Steph Curry. You have the best shooter of all time, the best shooter to ever touch a basketball court. You have to go out there and perform. He's playing lights out. In the comeback win they had last night, he dropped 41 points to be able to beat the Bucks by just a single point. So he's playing fantastic basketball. He's not giving up on this season. So I don't see how management or even any other player on this team could give up, especially when you look at Steph Curry. He just turned 33 years old. He's not getting any younger. He's starting to deal with a lot more injuries than we saw in the middle of his career, kind of that prime when he was in the uh, the finals so often. They need to win now. This isn't a team that can just, that can just sit around and wait. To, okay, we can just push this off a year, get another good pick, get Clay Thompson back. That's not a time. That's not a time that they have. Every moment of this season is valuable for this Warriors team because. You don't know how much longer Steph Curry has. I'm not saying he's going to retire in the next two years. But 
we're looking at four, five years, and Steph Curry could be done. So for me, it's every year's all in. If Steph Curry's on your team, every single year has to be all in. They're not that far out of the playoffs, only about four or five games out, and they're they've pushed their way up to that seven, six, seven seed. So for me, I think you have to. You have to make a push. You cannot throw in the towel. Yes, I think they're a first round exit. I do. But you have to put you have to give them a chance. If Steph Curry has an opportunity, you're in good hands. And now last topic here on the Warriors before we take our first break. So let's say they do make it to the postseason. I've said first round exit. Do you think they could get into the postseason and make some noise against a team like the Jazz, Suns, or Clippers who they're more than likely going to have to play? I think it's possible. Uh, Anytime you have a star player like Steph Curry who can just take over a game, you're going to be able to make some noise in the playoffs. I don't think, if they do make the playoffs, I don't think they're going to get swept. That's the very least. I think they can at least go six games, probably seven, in a first-round series. It really depends how healthy they are and who they're playing. Yeah, for me, it's all about who they play. Let's say they do get in as the eighth seed and they play the Jazz. I think that's a 4-1 series win for the Jazz. And I think that because Steph Curry obviously can score 45, 50 points any given night. That's who he is. Greatest shooter of all time. But the Jazz also, Donovan Mitchell proved last postseason, he can do that too. And the Jazz also have a very consistent roster around him and other star players. I think that would be a quick series. The Suns are an interesting one. They're currently the two. Now, that's a team I think they could take the six games, six, seven games. Yes, they have Chris Paul. They have Devin Booker. They have DeAndre Ayton. But I still think this Warriors team would be able to compete with them. They have very good players. Obviously, Devin Booker's fantastic and very underrated at that. But Steph Curry, I think, would be able to help this team compete against a team like that. And the X factor in that game would have to be Draymond. When Draymond's facilitating the ball well, the Warriors are a very, very good team. When Draymond's not on the court or he's not facilitating well, they tend to struggle. So for me, when you have Draymond, who's the facilitator as opposed to your point guard, who's more the scorer, he has to be on top of his game. And if he is against a Suns team and Steph Curry's hitting his shots, then I think they can take them six, seven games. The Clippers, they'd be tough. The duo of Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, that could make a quick series there. But we've also seen the Clippers make the postseason and struggle, not play well at all. So they're kind of a wild card for me right now. But can they make some noise? Yeah, but I still think they're a first-round exit. I don't think they make it out of that first round. Depending on who they get, they may only be able to win just one game in that series. We're going to take our first break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, Joel Embiid comes back last night and makes a huge return against the Celtics. Also going to look at Montrez Harrell and Anobi's ejection from their last game. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into Unsportsmanlike Conduct. I'm Logan Howell. With me is David Meyer. And we're going to continue our NBA talk here. And we're going to now look at Joel Embiid. He makes his return last night against the Boston Celtics, drops 35, and leads his team to a victory. He had a monster game last night after dealing with a bunch of injury. Who is the MVP, in your opinion? Do you think Joel Embiid is the MVP so far this year? I'm not I'm not convinced. He, he 
he's done very well, but it, there's just something not quite there for the Sixers as a whole. I think it's probably a little bit of depth scoring. They could stand to add another shooter around uh, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. So it, it's the team he's on that's making it hard to think of him as an MVP, even though the Sixers are one of the better teams in the East. Yeah, for me, I think he was the MVP. And I say was because when you look at his stats, averaging 30 points, 11 boards, 3 assists, while shooting over 50% from the field, and just about 40% from three-point land for a center, impressive. I personally think he was the MVP, and what's going to hold him back from that is his injury. He's missed a lot of games this year, only played in 33 games this year. I personally think that that's what's holding him back. If you take that out of the picture, yeah, sure, I think he's the guy. I really do. But when I look at it, I'm like, no, I can't give it to him, but who can I give it to? I personally think right now the leader for MVP, I thought LeBron at one point was the leader, then Embiid was the leader. I think it's Nikola Jokic. I personally, I really do. He's playing fantastic basketball right now, averaging 26, 10, and 8, while shooting almost 60% from the field and 42 from three-point land. He has played fantastic this year, and he's just... He's a guy that I feel like people, yes, they know Nikola Jokic. They know the name, especially after his postseason last year. But he still just doesn't get enough credit. He's up there for best big man in the league. He could be right now the best big man in the NBA. You got Anthony Davis dealing with injury. Joel Embiid put up a good fight, but he's also dealt with injuries. I think Jokic right now is the best big man in the NBA. I don't really think it's particularly close in terms of just his availability and everything he does on the court. For me, Embiid put up a very good fight, but injury is what got him at the end. And Jokic is just that guy for me. I think he's the leader for MVP currently. And now, looking at the Sixers, big win and Embiid back. Where do you think they sit among these top teams in the East? They're they're up there. It's really, it's not an easy decision because there are three kind of top teams. You have either the Sixers, the Nets, or the Bucks, and I think they're one when they're the top team in the East when the Nets aren't healthy. The Nets just, if they get healthy, they're the best team in the East. That being said, I think they'd probably be around five or six in the West because the West is just incredibly stacked, and it's... It's just unfair at this point how big the difference is between the two conferences. For me, it is tough. I think the Nets are one, clearly. And I think there's a good argument that that they're the best team in the NBA, especially when healthy. I think there's a very good argument for it. Um, Obviously, Kevin Durant came back tonight. Didn't start, but did come back, and we'll get into that just a little bit later. I think the Nets are the best team, but I think the Sixers are right there at number two in my opinion, and it's flipped of the rankings. The Sixers and Nets are currently tied at 35-16, and 16, but the Sixers, because of tiebreakers, sit at number one within the conference. I just think the Nets are the best, and the Sixers are the only team in the East that have a chance to beat them, in my opinion. 
If the Sixers can't beat the Nets, the Nets will represent the East in the finals, and I think there's a very good chance that they win it all. Um, I think the Sixers, that's where they sit. Right now, they're not the best, but they're the only opportunity to take out the best. It reminds me a lot of last year, except the Heat were a real underdog team, but it was when you looked at it, it was, okay, the Heat are really the only team, and they're the best matchup to take out the Bucks. But if they don't, the Bucks will probably go all the way. Not necessarily win, but get to the finals. The Heat beat them, and then they were able to make the finals. I think it's the same type of situation there with the 76ers. I think they're a clear number two within the East. And there's a pretty good gap, I think, personally. And now looking at the 76ers team, one thing they struggled with, Embiid and Simmons, is success in the postseason. Do you think this season will be different for them? Can they be successful come this postseason? It's possible, but I'm not too... What's the word I'm looking for? I'm not too high on them. Uh, coming into the postseason, they're just... It, they don't feel like a complete team to me. They don't meet... They don't check enough boxes to feel like, yes, this team can really go all the way without someone just completely going out of their mind scoring wise they Joel Embiid could do that that's a possibility but it just doesn't feel like they have quite enough to really make an impact in the playoffs I think they probably get past the first round it's in the second and maybe conference finals where you get problems because of their history in the postseason. Yeah, for me, I see those struggles. And postseason struggles are something that stick out to me because they're not necessarily something that goes away very easily. It kind of hangs over their heads a little bit. And it's in all sports, not just the NBA, where you see that. And for me, I expect them to make the conference finals and go up against the Nets. I talked about them being one and two. I think what gets them there this time is just the 76ers, it's kind of like a new team in a sense, not necessarily because the players. They do have some new guys. Uh, Danny Green, I, I personally, like you said, I'd like to see a better shooter, but Danny Green is supposed to be that guy for them. But for me, it starts with the coaching. Doc Rivers, now with the 76ers, that's the biggest difference for me. Doc Rivers has postseason success. He's been around the league now, quite a, a couple different teams. I think his ability to coach this team up is why we see them leading the East currently and also why I think they make the conference finals and are that team that has the best shot to beat the Nets. Yes, they have talent, but it starts with the coaching staff. They're going to have to get the best out of this team in the postseason and get them to come to play night in and night out. So for me, the X factor is Doc Rivers. It's got to be him. It all rides on Doc Rivers because the talent's there. Now you just have to go be successful. And one trend for the 76ers that is worrisome come postseason time, their home record currently is 20-5. and five, And on the road, they're 15-11. and 11. It's kind of a staggering difference there. That's something you're going to have to watch moving into the postseason. And it's going to show how important getting the number one seed in the East will really be for them. So now we're going to move on. Montrez Harrell and Anobi of the Raptors and Harrell of the Lakers got into it last night in a game in the game between the Lakers and the Raptors. And 
to me, what happened was Schroeder went to try to grab, Dennis Schroeder tried to grab a Raptors player to prevent him from hitting the ground. The Raptors player took it a little bit differently and kind of, you could say flipped him. Uh, it was kind of like he's trying to grab and get balanced back up. Schroeder hits the floor. Harold and Noby get into it. And both teams are getting into it. Those are the two that are ejected. And now, being ejected from that game, do you think either of them has a suspension coming in their future? Or is this just one of those, you got ejected, we'll see you uh, tomorrow night? I think it's more leaning towards the, you you got a little hot, get ejected, and you'll you'll be back tomorrow. If there are suspensions, I would imagine they won't be long, maybe two or three games, which doesn't really kill you as a team. So it to me, it was just kind of one of those things that's going to happen in a game. You're Someone's going to get fouled hard and someone's going to get flipped when bodies are flying. It It's just going to happen and things are going to get taken the wrong way. But just moving past that and trying to play the best that you can. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Nothing is going to come of that. It was just a little scuffle. And it's between, you have to look at too, two very frustrated NBA teams currently. You look at the Raptors, they go from the top of the East and top of the NBA winning a championship, and they've just slowly declined ever since. Right now they're sitting at 20 and 31. They've lost three, uh, they've lost out of their last 10, seven of them. And then you look at the Lakers, ever since LeBron and AD have got hurt, the Lakers have not been good. They've been... I would say worse than a mid-tier team in the West, where they sit at five right now. Without LeBron and AD, they're lucky to make the playoffs. I think war- the Warriors are better than that Lakers team with those injuries that they have. The Lakers are four and six in their last ten. These are just two very frustrated teams. That's all that was, and I don't expect much to come of it. And looking at both these players, if they, let's say they do get a suspension. Can they go? Can they live without them? Yeah, I mean Montrez Harrell. They gave him that contract to pull him away from the Clippers. He hasn't necessarily been the greatest for the Lakers. Then Anobi for the Raptors. I mean, I, there's not really much chance they make the playoffs, so it's not really going to affect them very much. So I think both teams could live without them. And now looking at the NCAA March Madness. Baylor and Gonzaga square off in the final game, and Baylor dropped Gonzaga and ended their perfect season bid. When you look at this game, what did Baylor do well that won this game for them? Rebounding. They out-rebounded Gonzaga thoroughly. Uh, A margin of plus 16 rebounds uh, and turnovers. They didn't turn the ball over that much, so... It's those two kind of fundamental things to the game. You're rebounding, and you're not turning the ball over. You just have the ball more. And you can see that in field goal attempts. Baylor had 67 field goal attempts. Gonzaga only had 49. If you have the ball more, you're shooting more, and you're scoring more. That's just how you win. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. Baylor was very good defensively as well. I thought they did a great job of just being all over Gonzaga's shooters when they did get opportunities to shoot the ball. You look at Gonzaga, what they were able to do from the three-point line, wasn't much. Only shot 29% in that game. 
Rebounds were huge, obviously, especially for Baylor on the offensive side. 16 offensive boards just to Baylor's, uh, I mean, to Gonzaga's five, excuse me. For me, it all starts right there. You play good defense, you out-rebound a team, you're going to win every single time. And it really showed in this matchup. And personally, also, I thought Baylor had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. There were some people kind of crowning Gonzaga already, hey, undefeated season. And I think that got to Baylor. Hey, you're not going to get an undefeated season off of us and be the first team to ever do that. I think that gave them just a little bit extra to go out there and play. And for me, it was a little bit of a surprise. I did personally think Gonzaga could come out on top. A very close game, but I expected Gonzaga to play better and possibly even win this game. So I did not expect what happened whatsoever. I did not expect Baylor to just dominate this game wire to wire. What about you? I thought it was going to be closer. There was definitely the possibility that Baylor would win, for me at least, but I thought it was going to come down to the wire. And one of those kind of classic March Madness, last shot, uh, long buzzer beater type of things, but it was not. Just an absolute thrashing from the beginning. It Baylor just was in control from jump, and it was, there was, Gonzaga didn't really have a chance. And now looking at going undefeated, it's not something you see in sports very much at all. One team comes to mind, obviously the 72 Miami Dolphins went undefeated, but also the NFL season was shortened at that point. The Patriots came up short in the Super Bowl, and now we see Gonzaga get all the way there and lose as well. Is going undefeated a realistic feat that, teams can achieve in today's sports world realistic no but it will happen it's kind of like how for the longest time in March Madness it was all right the 16th seed is never gonna win it's just not gonna happen they're never gonna win but it happened it's very unlikely but eventually it will happen it's Depending on which sport you go to, uh, the likelihood changes. In baseball, I'd say that's impossible. There are just too many games. You're, you're going to lose. One of my personal favorite quotes is, you're going to win a third of your games. You're going to lose a third of your games. It's what you do in that middle third that determines how well your season is. I paraphrased a little, but that's not the case for some games. I think uh, college basketball is one of the uh, games that could have an undefeated season and probably football. Yeah, and when you look at both of those sports as well, there are two that it's kind of just one and done. That's how it is. It can come down to the wire. Anything can happen at the end, and the lesser or the better team can win at any single point. It's different than, let's say, the NBA or even the MLB and even hockey. When you have series, it makes it a lot harder for the underdog to win necessarily. And we've seen underdogs win, but when you have a team that is is severely worse than another team, nine times out of ten, they're not going to win a seven-game series. So for me, I think it's possible... But just so tough to do. Um, when you look at college basketball, 
I mean, there was a few times that Gonzaga was on uh, alert, especially in the UCLA, UCLA game, just the uh, game before. It took Suggs's, uh shot the very end from the logo, the buzzer beater to win that and even get there. And then you look at the NFL, that's just so difficult to do. Um, and I think that is, like you talked about, the 16 seeds beating the one seeds, it was something that was impossible. That's what makes going undefeated almost more impossible because those teams do have such a, not good chance, but those teams do upset really good teams. It's a game like that where you just don't come out to play for the final couple minutes and you lose. So I just think it's, it would be so tough for a team to do. Not necessarily impossible, but I don't think it's all that realistic at the same time. And so now our last NBA topic we have here tonight. Currently the Nets are playing the Pelicans, and Kevin Durant was supposed to start, does not make the start, has entered the game and played, and he's finally back from injury from the Nets. Do you expect him to contribute right away to this Nets team? Yeah, he's... He's just one of the better players in the NBA. I think top five is probably the correct uh, place for him. Definitely top ten for sure. So even if it is in a reduced role and they kind of ease him back in, which it looks like they're going to do because he's not starting, I expect him to contribute in the minutes that he's playing. Yeah, I think you're exactly right with Kevin Durant. I think he's going to be brought in very slowly. They have no rush to try to bring him back. Like like we talked about, they're sitting atop the East right now. They're two, but tied for that first seed. And you also have Kyrie Irving, who is a very good player. You could argue a top 15, top 10, maybe even player in the league today. And James Harden, who I also believe is a top five player in the NBA. You have two of those guys. Yes, James Harden's injured right now. But Kyrie Irving can get you past some of these teams. And not to mention just the overall depth of this Nets team. That was their problem. And now it's almost become a strength of theirs. You guys, you have guys like Joe Harris, Jeff Green, LaMarcus Aldridge, Blake Griffin playing more reserve roles. I know a couple of them do start, but they're not, they're more reserve scoring because you have Harden, Kyrie, and Kevin Durant scoring so many points that you don't need Durant right away. You can you can be all right and still get through this season, especially being in the East. And I wouldn't do it because I would be worried that he'd get re-injured. This Nets team, all three of them have dealt with many injuries. Kyrie's been out. Harden's been out. He's out again. Kevin Durant's missed time. I just rest these guys when you can. Just make sure they're fully healthy. Do not rush them back. And that's why I like the decision by the Nets to just let him go out and play in some meaningful minutes. Right now they're up 101 to 72 the Pelicans just don't really have much competition for them. He's currently in, but I wouldn't expect him to be in a whole much, whole lot longer. So, for this situation with Kevin Durant, are you worried of a possible re-injury with him? Yeah, because it he's just such an important part of your team. I think it's possible to win without him, but you're going to need to be very good and you're going to need Kyrie and Harden to be healthy. So it's there's just too many factors, if he isn't healthy, for you to consistently win without him. So having him integrate slowly and making sure he is 100% healthy for the playoffs is an absolute necessity. 
Yeah, I'm with you 100%. He's got to get back. Make sure he's ready to go because you will have some tough competition from the West, and you have to be ready for it when it comes to you. Now looking at Kevin Durant in terms of, you talked about Harden and Kyrie. Where does he step in in terms of a score? Is he back to that number one guy? Has Harden taken that over now? Where would you put him in terms of those three? Who's going to be the lead guy in terms of scoring? Going to take the last shot to win the game. When they're all healthy, I think it's Kevin Durant. But when you have those three top-tier scorers, it allows you to kind of go off script and go away from where you would think. So you can kind of draw the focus towards Kevin Durant and then go a different direction and still have a very talented player taking that last shot. I think the top scorer out of the three of these should be Durant, just in terms, I think he's the best scorer, and he's he has decent uh, playmaking skills, but for me, the playmaker should probably be James Harden. Yeah, I'm with you on that. When I look at this team, Durant's got to be the lead guy. And I am a little worried about the chemistry come playoff time because you're going to get closer games. You're not going to be up 103 to 74 like they are right now. You're going to have matchups where you have to play your best basketball. And we saw it with every other big three. They've had times where their chemistry is a little bit off. They had to figure out a way to get going. One that sticks out to me is the 2011 Heat versus the Mavs. There was no sense of, okay, LeBron James is the top dog. He's the scorer. Everyone else kind of funneling behind him. Dwayne Wade becomes the number two. Bosch becomes the number three. It was LeBron one night, Wade one night, Bosch one night. And they all struggled because they didn't have their set roles. I, I'm interested to see if that happens with this, net team, this Nets team. Do they kind of fall into that same problem? Or do we see them take off with that sense of any guy can go off any night? I think it's going to be interesting to see where their chemistry is at come playoff time. The good thing for them is Harden and Durant obviously played together before. And Kyrie and KD have very good chemistry on and off the court. So I think that's going that's good for them. But I, I want to see what happens here. I think Durant should be the guy, though. We're going to take our last break here on Sportsman Like Conduct. When we come back, we're going to get into a big Panthers trade. They have a new QB in town. And who is Adam Schefter saying San Francisco will take with the third overall pick? Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HC2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And now we're going to get into our NFL talk here. Big trade went down this week. The Carolina Panthers make a move for a quarterback, but it's not moving up in the draft for one. They trade a second and a fourth round pick, I believe next year, and a sixth round pick as well this season for Sam Darnold, quarter, former quarterback of the Jets. David, what do you think of the Panthers making the move for Sam Darnold? It's it's an interesting pick. I'm, I'm a big fan, actually. There are some downsides. Definitely losing the second is what's going to hurt the most, but... There, you have seen flashes of top-tier talent from Sam Darnold. That's why he was drafted, what was it, second, third overall? Third. He was third. Um, so if you can get even 
like half of that, just a decent quarterback, a slightly above average quarterback, it's worth the three picks they traded away. Yeah, for me, I, I'm not a huge fan of it. Not because I don't like Sam Darnold, but more because along the lines of, I thought Carolina was really going to go in on a quarterback. Really go in and get the guy of the future. Darnold, for me, is more like, we're going to go ahead and sniff around here. We're going to figure out what we have in Sam Darnold and what type of player he is. But I don't think he's the long-term answer in Carolina. Could he give you some good years? Maybe. I expect him to be not much more than what we've seen with him with the Jets. He's, his career high in a single season was in 2019, 19 touchdowns of 13 picks. Realistically, on the Carolina Panthers with Joe Brady, I think Joe Brady is going to be great for Sam Darnold. But realistically, I think we don't see Sam Darnold improve much off of that. Maybe like 18 to 20 touchdowns, 10 picks. I, that's what I envision Sam Darnold right now on this Panthers team. It's huge because you were able to keep the eighth overall pick. That I mean, I don't. You can't give that up for Sam Darnold. Regardless, the only person I'm giving that up for is Deshaun Watson. And with everything going on with Deshaun Watson right now, there's a good possibility that with everything going on, that he never plays in the NFL ever again. Right now, with everything going on, and I think that really changed the dynamic of the NFL. There's you look at a team like the 49ers and the Panthers who were rumored to be going all in on him, they've now made moves to go get a new quarterback. If that signals anything to you about what's going on in that Deshaun Watson situation. Niners make the move to get up to three, and they felt like they had to because they didn't want to get hopped by Carolina. Carolina's a team wanting a QB, and then that left Carolina sitting there, okay, we have to go get Sam Darnold. He's a valuable option. I think they gave up just a little bit too much. I, I would have tried to get the two out of there. I think you could have could have been had for a three, four, six, which I know second and a third, but that is a big difference for the Panthers when it's eighth overall in the second round. That's practically a back end first rounder. And if you really wanted to, you could trade that in a fifth round pick and get back into the first round. So for me, I just wasn't a huge fan of giving up the two. But I think what everyone wants to see from Sam Darnold is can he be like Ryan Tannehill? Leave Ryan Gate, uh, Adam Gase, excuse me, and be successful. What do you think? Can I, he be like Tannehill? I think so. Uh, you see a lot um, in the uh, in the NFL. You're worried about letting your high draft pick quarterback go because you don't want them to like come back and bite you like Tannehill. But that just happens so rarely. Guys, that that doesn't happen all that often. I could list a bunch of names, but that's not the point. But you talked about his uh, 2019 season, Sam Darnold's. 19 touchdowns and 13 interceptions with 3,000 yards. That's under Adam Gase. How good do you have to be to put up those numbers under Adam Gase with almost no talent around you? an underperforming Le'Veon Bell, a line that's practically Swiss cheese, and Adam Gase is calling the plays. I cannot emphasize how much I dislike Adam Gase. 
I, I'm a little bit sad the Jets got rid of him because I can't just trash talk him as often. There's not that opportunity. But I think Darnold is going to have... He's he's only 23. He's going to... I think he's going to take a big step forward. And he has the possibility to be a franchise quarterback for the Panthers. Yeah, for me, when it comes to can he be the next Tannehill, I'm personally... I'm not sold that he can be. I think he can be a good quarterback with the Panthers. Like I said, more of an average type guy, average to below average, but push his way from, I think currently when you look at where he sits within NFL quarterback rankings, I would say probably 25 or lower right now, just based off the of last season, nine touchdowns, 11 picks didn't perform that well. And that's not on him. I mean, the jets are bad. They're bad team. That's why they're picking second overall. But when I look at what Ryan Tannehill did before he got to Tennessee, that for me is where I, you see the potential there. 27 touchdowns, 12 picks with 4,000 yards in 2014. 2015, he had 24 touchdowns, 12 picks. Then he in 2018, after a little bit of an injured season, he also another injured year for him, but he comes back with 17 touchdowns, 9 picks. Then he goes to Tennessee, and you see the turnovers just drop drastically he's down to six turnover six interceptions and seven interceptions and the touchdowns shoot up to 33 so for me I'm seeing these stats before he even left Adam Gase's offense I'm like okay I go he has some potential but I do believe when he left Adam Gase's offense he was viewed in the same light as Sam Darnold is a lot of people didn't expect him to be able to take off and the difference for me with Tannehill was he sat behind Mariota not that Mariota taught him anything new but he was able to just kind of sit back learn the offense get his confidence back and really took off once he got his opportunity I think Darnold could be I think he's thrown into the fire right away because the Panthers need to figure out what they have with him because when you look at it right now he's only making I believe it's like two million two to four million on his rookie deal but next season they they already did pick up his option it's $18 million that's now kicking in to Sam Darnold. Do you realistically want to pay Sam Darnold $18 million and not even know what you have yet? I think he's thrown right into the fire. And it's going to be on Joe Brady to really help develop him. I think it's a good possibility that he can develop under him. But I think even Sam Darnold right now, what we've seen, I think his best that we're going to get from him is kind of that good, where he's in that, that tier of like 14 to 18 quarterback wise that's where I expect his max to get to just after everything we've seen with the Jets so far that's a lot of toll on a player and everything he had to deal with with the Jets there's flashes there but I just want to see him turn that into more success with those flashes and now looking at the Panthers we talked about Darnold picking eighth overall does this mean the Panthers are out of the quarterback market at eight overall I imagine so you want you invested in Sam Darnold and you want to put him in a position where he can succeed that's either line o-line or wide receiver or possibly Kyle Pitts if he falls to 8 uh which I don't think he will but y- you just I don't think there's going to be a quarterback available at 8 that is worth spending the 8th overall pick on I'm I'm probably not taking Mac Jones if he falls to eight. 
at eight, I would take them around 12 or 15. So I think they're probably going to go offensive line or wide receiver. Yeah, for me, I don't think they're out of the quarterback market at eight. I think it's more of a, we now have the opportunity to take our guy at eight if he happens to get to us, if a Lance falls, if a Fields falls. We have the opportunity, but at the same time, we don't have a need to have to force a pick such as a Mac Jones. And if, let's say, Mac Jones doesn't even get to us, let's say there's some mock drafts, I believe it was Mel Kuyper, that had all the top four QBs going in the top four picks, and Mac Jones not even making it to Carolina. When I look at that, you have to think about it. The Panthers needed to make a move where if they were left with no quarterback options and they don't, and let's say they didn't like Mac Jones, that they had someone they could ride with this season with some potential. Panthers fans are buying into it. I've seen all the memes about the Hey Darnold, uh, talking about Hey Arnold. I've seen it all. They're buying into it. If your fan base can buy into it, you're going to have the best weapons he's had in his whole entire career around him, especially considering his best weapon he ever had with the Jets is Robbie Anderson, who's on the Panthers now. So you're giving him his best weapon he ever had, plus more. I think he can be successful. I just personally, for me, if I'm the Panthers, I would have tried everything to get up to four and go get my guy. I mean, and let's say it, you have Fields, you have Lance there. I would have I would have went and got him because with Darnold, you're not, you're not sure in what you're getting. It could be good, but with a guy with this, let's say if it is a Fields, Lance, or even with some of the rumors, it could be Fields and Lance both available at four. Some of these rumors that Mac Jones going three, those two ceiling I think is very high. And Darnold's ceiling when he came in was very high as well. But I'm just worried. I really am worried about Sam Darnold after the whole Adam Gase effect. It really takes a toll on a player. And now we're going to look into the third overall pick. We've talked about the trade that the Jets made, almost guaranteeing that Zach Wilson's going to be the pick there. Adam Schefter came out and he said, San Francisco will be taking Mac Jones with the third overall pick. And that's been a hot rumor. Ever since the trade went down, that's everyone's been talking about Mac Jones of San Francisco because he's Kirk Cousins, because he's Matt Ryan. Do you buy this rumor? Uh, I don't. It seems like everybody outside of San Francisco is throwing around hot takes, and it's a lot of Mac Jones. But we've seen from San Francisco specifically, they're just an absolute vault when it comes to uh, roster moves. The biggest moves they've made recently, nobody knew those were coming. The the trade up to three, I didn't even think about that for the Niners. And something specifically, this kind of... It seems a little bit like when uh, the Giants took Daniel Jones. It's... Everybody thinks San Francisco or a team is going to pick this guy. He's definitely going. It's going to be Mac Jones for sure. And then it's just not. It's some You go in a different direction, and I think it should be Justin Fields. Yeah, I thought you made a great point there. And another one, speaking of Sam Darnold, everyone for months said Sam Darnold is the consensus number one overall pick to Cleveland. He was the guy. All of a sudden, draft morning, Baker Mayfield's the guy. The, the, the rumor comes out. It's Baker Mayfield. It's Baker Mayfield. 
the 49ers organization, like you said, doesn't have any leaks. And the only thing that's come out of San Francisco was from an assistant coach. They, he was asked about it, and he said that Kyle asked him, the, the QB coach, the offensive coordinator now, Mike McDaniel, and another coach to go watch quarterback film of these college guys and come back with a list of their guys and who their favorite was, assuming Wilson and Lawrence are off the board. He goes, so we all came back, we had a meeting, and we all said who we liked best, and we asked Kyle, who's your guy? He wouldn't tell us. He's It's, it's his. He's the only one. I'm John Lynch, those two are the only two that know this pick right now. And all this rumors that Mac Jones, because he's Kirk Cousins, Mac Jones because he's this. I I also it, it's been very known that Kirk Cousins and Kyle Shanahan they have a very good relationship. Kyle only coached Kirk Cousins for three games. It's something that doesn't get noticed a lot. Yes, he wanted him when he hit free agency, but he also wanted Pierre Garcon. He also wanted other guys who were just familiar with the system to start to build the foundation moving forward. He brought in Brian Hoyer his first year there because he was familiar with the system. So to say it's going to be Mac Jones just because he's like Kirk Cousins, I think is a – I don't like that. I think that's a little bit out there. And also, the 49ers, when it comes draft season, they throw out a lot of smoke screens. Just looking at a few of their drafts that they've had last year, they took Javon Kinlaw at 14 – Brandon Ayuk at 25. Everyone had Henry Ruggs, Jerry Judy, CeeDee Lamb mocked to the 49ers. Every single time. They Their favorite wide receiver is Brandon Ayuk. They took him at 25. Then you look at the year before with Nick Bosa. I personally thought Nick Bosa was the pick, but there was a lot of people, especially Ian Rappaport, who said it was going to be Quinn and Williams. It wasn't. It was Nick Bosa. They don't want a team hopping them to get up the second overall. And no, the Jets, I don't think the Jets trade out there. But if they got a just absolutely crazy offer from a desperate team, would they think about it? I'm sure they would. And so when I look at this, they don't want a team to hop them at two. And they also don't want anyone knowing who they're going to take because the whole Jets coaching staff is practically, I've said it before, San Francisco East at this point. They all are over there. If they hear rumors that Kyle Shanahan really loves a player, maybe they start to reevaluate a little bit and go, okay, well, if Kyle really likes them, they will run the same exact system. Maybe we need to take another look at this guy and see what Kyle likes about him. So for me, I'm not buying it. I don't believe. I will not believe it until I actually see it, um, if it does happen. And last point on that, I saw a tweet that perfectly described Mac Jones of San Francisco he said that if that is the realistic, it is the pick that Mac Jones of San Francisco at three will either make Kyle Shanahan a Hall of Fame coach and a Super Bowl champion or have him fired in two years. And I truly believe that's what it is. Uh, Mac Jones is that type of prospect. And now looking at, let's say they do take Mac Jones, for example, here. How does that impact the rest of the draft if Mac Jones now is a third overall pick instead of a Justin Fields, Trey Lance? I think that means uh, those guys are going to fall a decent amount, probably to around 10 or 12. Uh, It makes the quarterback market just a lot different uh, going, you know, the draft as it progresses. And I could see, depending on the team and 
circumstances, I could see a team trading up uh, to number four, and then if uh, if Fields or uh, Lance was the guy they wanted, I could see them trading up to four and getting him right away because the quarterbacks are flying off the board. First three or first three picks are QBs. You want to make sure you have a your quarterback going into the season. Yeah, you're exactly right. If they get past there, there's trades coming. New England absolutely is going to be a team that's going to try to fly up the board to go up there. And a, a surprising team for me could even be Denver at nine. If, let's say, Fields and Lance are both there at fourth overall, fifth overall, I could see Denver moving up and possibly saying, identifying one of those two guys as the long-term answer for that team. I think Drew Locke has potential, but there's a lot of people that don't think so. And within the organization, there's rumors that there's people within the organization that don't believe so. If they identify Fields or Lance as their guy, they now have the opportunity to go up there and get him. You have team like New England who can try to go up there and get him. And this is a little bit out there, but depending on how far they slide, let's say they make it to 7-8 overall, you could have a team, especially like Carolina, if they're staying at 8, they could be interested in their guy that they didn't think was going to get there or even them trading up. But you have teams like the football team, like the Chicago Bears, that while it seems unrealistic, we've seen the Chiefs and the Texans move from 22 to 26. They're both picking somewhere in there all the way up to 10 and 12 to get Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes. So while I don't think it's all that realistic, it's possibility. Those type of teams now come into play to try to move up and go get their guys. So I think it has a huge impact on the draft and it really can, it would really shape up a whole different NFL in a way. Because when you bring in Mac Jones, let's say, to San Francisco, what does that mean for a guy like Jimmy Garoppolo? If you bring in Justin Fields, he's a guy that has the most experience out of Mac Jones, Trey Lance. You'd expect maybe he could be the day one guy. Mac Jones, is he a day one guy? And where does Jimmy G go? If not, does Jimmy G have a chance to maybe even possibly outplay Mac Jones? Because I do believe Mac Jones, for me, his absolute ceiling is Kirk Cousins about a 33-touchdown guy at best, and he's going to have some turnovers in there. But I, I think Mac Jones could struggle a lot more than these other QBs just because the situation he had in Alabama was so much better. So for me, there's a lot of question marks with that pick, and a lot of people are saying the draft starts at four. I'm saying pump the brakes. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm ready for that quite yet. And now talking about the pick that I said the draft starts at, pick number four. It's on the trade block currently. The Atlanta Falcons are trying to move it. Based on reports, everyone's saying it's going to be Lawrence, Wilson, Jones. That's the consensus right now. And Mac Jones is obviously a question mark for us, but every other media guy is saying that's the pick. Now you are on the clock at four, and if you're other teams, you now know who's possibly going to be on the board because that's what everyone's saying. Do you think a team, we talked about a little bit, moves up to four, and if so, who is it? And let's say it may not even be Mac Jones to pick at three, but do you think there's a team that would try to move up the four regardless of what quarterback's left on the board? Yeah, I think so. I could definitely see a, just a team nobody's thinking about. 
make a big move. And for me, it's the Steelers. They're not in a great situation with Big Ben. I just, I'm not a fan of what they have with him. And I could see them making a, a big move and try and get up to four. It's, it's a lot of picks to move and probably some players. Uh, I could also see the Washington football team moving up. It's just going to depend. For me, the you said the draft, it, it doesn't start at four. I think you're right. It starts at three. But where, who gets picked at three, and then who gets picked at four, and who's picking at four, is going to change the landscape of the NFL forever. Yeah, I'm with you. I A lot of people are saying it is. It's, we're at four, pick four. I, I'm I'm saying pump the brakes, and we we don't know who's going three yet, and that's why Atlanta's pick right now I think is even more valuable because you don't know who's going for right then. I think personally, you brought up a couple really good teams. I think it's going to be a team that's a little bit desperate, a little. They need to go make a move at the quarterback position, and I think there realistically could be a team, but I personally think Atlanta stays put. Personally. I don't think they move off that pick because I think there's just too many options out there of someone they could bring in. They've The last few drafts loaded up on offensive linemen. They could still look to go that direction. I just don't personally see it. I would love to put a defender there because they need defense, but I just don't know if there's a defender that's really worth the fourth overall pick. And I know you kind of have to go off a of need, but also best player available in my opinion. And I'm let's say it goes the way I think the draft will go. Lawrence, Wilson, Fields. For me, if I'm Atlanta, I'm staying put. I'm taking Kyle Pitts. I'm bringing him in there. He can just do so much with that offense. Calvin Ridley, Julio Jones, Kyle Pitts, Hayden Hurst, also a good blocking tight end, as well as a good receiver. You just have so many weapons for Matt Ryan. And let's say you do decide to go maybe QB second, third round, get a developmental guy. Kyle Pitts can be that guy for that team that's kind of the safety blanket. You line them up wherever you want, be a tight end. I personally think that that is, I think that's the pick for me. If I'm Atlanta, that's who I'm taking based off of how I think the draft's going to go. You kind of just have to sit there and see what you can get. So that concludes this episode of Unsportsmanlike Conduct. If you're on social media, give us a follow at KALA underscore UC and on Instagram, a follow and a like at KALA underscore UC. If you're on Facebook, be sure to like Unsportsmanlike Conduct. Like I said, that concludes this episode. Thank you for listening and good night. See ya.